0: Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee. Today, I have a special uh, special guest. His name is Jack Roseberry, and he is the founder of the firm Roseberry Architectural Studio, originally a small home-based practice. At its founding in 2006, the firm has expanded in ability and size to handle larger projects and development. Prior to starting his architectural practice, Jack worked with the engineering and architecture firm of Hawkins Webb Yeager, where he was the planning director and architectural associate and with the firm of Stephen Ray Fellman Architects as project manager. He is a graduate of New York Institute of Technology. Jack, it is great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Uh, well hey let's let's maybe start things off by if you could just peel back the onion a little bit about yourself how did you get into architecture and eventually owning your own practice?
1: Uh, well I got into architecture as a as a kind of I, I originally wanted to be a naval architect okay and I went to unfortunately getting into naval architecture is a very high level of academia so I decided to go into building architecture I bu- I visited Paris. 1976 in my French class, so I got to see what Paris was all about and the architecture of France and the beauty of the architecture of France. And that's kind of what got me started into it a little bit, and it just evolved over time. It was, uh, you know, I, I've gone kind of a couple different directions off of that, but I, uh, it's one of those things I that I start. That's how I started, it's basically getting involved with drafting and drawing things in in, in uh, drafting classes in high school stuff like that. So it's it was. So, you know, it became a career path for me. Did you come
0: from a, uh, a family that was, you know, in the building industry in, in, in any kind of way? Or were you sort of the, you know, the spearhead that kind of went off and did your own thing?
1: My grandfather was an architectural model maker. Um, he, he would do large scale models of helicopters and drones and different things. He used to work for Gyrodyne here on Long Island. Mm-hmm. One of his models actually sits in the USS Yorktown in in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, a helicopter drone. Uh, that's he did kind of stuff like that. My father was an auto mechanic, so he he was more technically oriented and, and, and nuts and bolts stuff. So that's you know I don't have I don't have somebody directly involved. My cousin, graphic artist. You know we share a lot of the same passions, but it, it was that's you know as far as having somebody actually doing building, I really didn't have anybody anything involved with that. And then how did you start your studio?
0: Was, did, was there a, a client, you know, everybody's got their own stories. So like for me and Alex, for instance, it was that we were laid off in the Great Recession and nobody was hiring. So we had to just find our own work.
1: You know, how, how did you kick yours off? Pretty much the same way. I, okay. I, 2003, well, I went through a period of time where I call quote unquote, my midlife crisis. I, I was at a firm in 2002, uh, Steve Feldman Architects. I was gonna to jump to another firm and I just didn't work out. And Steve told me when he brought me back in, he was like, listen, you're here until I can't have you anymore. And to be fair, he was fair about it. You know, he, he, he was upfront and I said, fine. And we, all of a sudden 2003, he, let, he laid me off. Um, but he said, you know, we gave me a couple things to tie me over and I just started my own thing. It took a couple of years of fits his thoughts. Really about three years, I joined a firm briefly to, to um, thinking I would move forward with them and that didn't work out. So, by the end of 05, I decided it was, you know, I was going to do a full-time commitment to, to my own practice and I called the Rosemary Architectural Studio at that time.
0: Very cool. How did you get your first clients? Um, was it just connections because, you know, where you live and people you knew or um, advertising?
1: Uh, at the time, I knew a lot of experts. I, I was very involved. I was, I was involved in in the local politics of, I should say local politics. I I was very, because of my Hawkins Web Jager career, where I was director of planning. I was director of, uh, I, I, was, I was architectural associate. I had a lot of connections in with expediters, with real estate people, at different points. So it was essentially when I went out on my own, even in 2003, um, when I first got laid off, and I kind of went through the fits and starts of of doing my own thing. Um, I knew all these people. I knew people who were expediting, real estate people. So as they started feeding me at first, it was just documentation work, cleaning up, cleaning up a, C, a certificate of occupancy, cleaning up a, a small addition, that type of thing. And just, it was one thing that kind of led to the other. And I got involved with what was, what now is called home advisor, but was service magic back in the day. And I got some clients through that. And it just was one of those things that slowly built momentum over the years. But a lot of my, a lot of my clients are referrals. Um, they're not so much, I'm not great at sales. I I find if I go out on 10 leads, I might, might land one, which might be a a cold calling thing, but I just never been great at salesmanship. So, uh, so it's basically been, you know, referrals, different people getting involved, contacts. I I went to a political dinner about two years back and picked up four clients at the political dinner and I knew everybody. It was like, wow! Well, wait a minute! I, you know, I never thought I, know, I knew I knew who these people were, but for all of them to show up in one evening it was like, wow! You know, <laughs> some of those people I'd seen in a long time either. So it was a very good, um, it was a good thing for me to do that. So it was things as we move along. Um, seven, you know, here I am, 14 years in Roseberry Architectural Studio, 70 years where I kind of started things, and it was one of those things that just keep you keep it keeps moving forward you know it's all i've all i've been able to do is make it move forward
0: yeah, yeah that that's great that's great well i mean you know 14 years uh, is you've already doubled the capacity of what our expectations of what typical small businesses you know they usually run their course in about 7 years there's a lot of statistics so i would i would i would give yourself a little bit more credit it seems like you're okay on sales at least to sustain that
1: <laughs> well, um you reinvent yourself you yeah. have to you in, in, when I started in 06, back out on my own, I wasn't sure. And I was broke, mm. <laughs> you know. So I started back out again. And then I had a connection with Habitat for Humanities with this architect there, who I'd known 20 years prior. And he brought me back to my original firm as a part-time consultant, full-time person. But I lived nearby. So it was one of those things. They knew where to find me. if I, They needed some, a couple hours here, a couple hours there was fine. And for six years, I helped them rebuild their practice, rebuild it. And and so, that was one part of the experiment. The second part of the experiment was, you know, by 2013, I was getting a little too big for the house. You yeah. know, it just wasn't, the work was getting bigger, the work was getting more demanding and you feel like you never go home. You know, you just, there's never, when you work from home, you're always on. Yeah, there's, there's no break. There's no break. And you have to learn to. And I used to, I do a whole bunch of things to walk away, but it's one of those things you have to move on with your career, your life, and everything else. I, I had office around, around Concom in New York, 2013 to 15. I moved to West recent in 2015, I share offices with another architect, and that relationship starting to wind down, so I may move offices next year, so... It's constantly relocation, but you reinvent yourself as you go along, you know, the different locations, what you do, what you're about, how things are moving forward. You know, staff changes, people change. So, you you kind of reinvent yourself. And that's probably why I'm stuck around is I'm willing to reinvent myself.
0: Absolutely. Adaptability is everything. I think that's a really great point that honestly, and I think we're probably at about two episode 200 and something with this podcast. I'm not sure anybody's ever brought that up about how, how to be, you need to be a, I used to call it a chameleon. As far as uh, if you're a sales salesperson, you know, you 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 change your kind of attitude or or kind of connect with people. But in the, with this with this ever changing business climate, um, what you're describing,
1: I think, is absolutely necessary for for longevity. Well, it's somebody. I had somebody working for me for a while who was older than I was, and she did. And I found early on she didn't have an open mind. It was one of those things. You, she just was stuck in her. This is the how I do it, okay? Mm-hmm. And I said, wait a minute, you work for me. You're doing what I asked going to do it. Yeah. But you you, you have to keep an open mind and realize that every day is different than the day before. You have to be better than the day before, okay? And what happens is, is that from my perspective is I never. I went to a firm straight out of college. that was an engineering and architecture firm, okay? We were engineers before we were even architects. We didn't hire a licensed architect until three years after I started working there. And we were told, keep keep a set of dirty clothes in the car because you may go out on a survey crew one day. You are go, you are drafting surveys to we deem you ready to do site planning and architecture and stuff like that. So it was very, but you had direct hands-on experience with clients. You were pro, you you managed projects very early on. You were expected to know different things. It wasn't just this is what you do. You're drawing. I hear architects coming out of college and they go to wherever and they drafted uh, bathroom details or elevator shaft details, mm-hmm. uh, stair details, whatever. And I said, that's not the way to, to advance. And I always felt that I, because of that, I have such a diverse project background, reinventing myself to what I have to be where I am is pretty easy because I've done it before. So, you know, I had about a I don't know, six or seven years a period where I didn't do a house, in 2015, after Sandy, uh, well, 2012, after Hurricane, I uh, checked, Tropical Storm Sandy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> very big designation here. Yeah. Uh, after Tropical Storm Sandy, I had to reinvent myself to do the residential stuff again. But I've done residential. Okay. So I, I've done, you know, so I just reinvented myself. And you learn new things. You have to keep your mind open to the new things you learn from that and uh, how to, how styles and fashions fit. So now I do probably 60% residential now. I'm not in love with it, but it pays the bills. So you have to do what you have to readapt yourself. But I know people who won't touch commercial work, won't touch residential work, won't do this, won't do that. If you if you if you don't adapt, you die. That's it. You know. Yep.
0: So that's, yeah. That's. 100. You sound like you're a lot like me in the sense I, I, I like to call myself a lowercase uh, architect, lowercase A architect. You know, we do really cool stuff too, but. Uh, we're not picky. I mean, at the end, we're, we haven't laid anybody off. We've actually hired during this last recession. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your experience and your work, kind of the breadth of what you've done, because it sounds like you, you do a variety. And I know you haven't worked extensively in New York City, but I would love to hear an East, uh, your perspective of what it is like to work in New York City, when, when, when and if you do and, and ha- when you have, and then all the way out to maybe like the Hamptons, you know, what that's like, the differences. Culture.
1: It's a whole yeah. different culture. You you start in Manhattan, and you architects in the city are. We are architect, building inspector. We are field evaluation. We because you have to do that stuff by by city law. You have to do. You have to be involved with the permit process. In New York City, if you don't have somebody's qualified to push the paper, you're dead. You're not going to get anything accomplished. So you have to have somebody very qualified to push the paper. To, Push the permits, the noted forms, noted forms that you're supposed to fill out. Because if you fill out the wrong form in New York City, you're in trouble, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's an experience, in that experience, that's something I enjoyed because it was one of those things that it kind of took the, the expedite took the pressure off because they knew what they were doing for the most part. And you can focus on, okay, this is the architectural situation, the architectural solution. The city, as a architectural entity, is easier in Long Island. And I tell people this all the time. It's easier to work in the city than it is on Long Island because the city building inspectors trust the architects to know what they're doing and to do their job and to certify the work and to be, now it's slowly changing now, but it's, they're getting more into um, the, the Long Island model where the building inspectors have all the power and they're reviewing plans and a lot of them don't have the qualifications to even do that stuff. but. We'll see I mean, we'll see how the city I haven't done any work in the city in a couple of years now, so I have to say it's one of those things that it's evolving all the time, so it's it's changing uh, how it goes, but it's easier to work in a the city there was because one to ter- get you yeah, there was it's one an easier process
0: that's interesting. I would have not expected that, and one of the can you explain for us because many of us don't know what this means, what is an expediter in New
1: York City? an expediter in New York City and Long Island is a person a process processes building permits. Okay, that's what they do. Now, in New York City, it's a licensed entity. It's wow. somebody who has to take a test, to get a license, and know what they're doing. On uh, Long Island, it's kind of the Wild West. You get people that call themselves expeditors, their housewives, their secretaries for construction firms. There's only a handful of quote unquote expeditors that might have a clue what they're doing. Okay, uh, a lot of them are don't know what they're doing <laughs> it's sad and i'm saying this publicly because i've also said publicly to even local expedites you guys really should be licensed on long island it should be a test it should be something that you have to be qualified to know what you're doing because you're making zoning and planning decisions for a homeowner mm-hmm. and if you don't know what you're doing you can really really mess it up mm-hmm. okay and that's i've i've seen this too often you know i i i I went to, I missed the zoning hearing one time and my the, the fellow in office went to the hearing and I didn't wasn't aware of it. And they made this agreement, the expediter was doing a case and made this agreement for this land swap that moved the, a property line over 10 feet. And I was like, wait a minute, you can't do that. You have this, 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 and this to deal with. Five years later, we're still dealing with it. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so what mistake,
0: yeah.
1: It's one of those things that you, you expediters are, here to stay along out and in the city, the city they're licensed. Uh, but also part of the thing about Expediter is the paperwork stack that they do for permits, is getting, it's getting to immense proportions. Mm-hmm. 15 copies of an application with that's 10 different applications. Have you ever heard of, uh, uh, what was the term I came A certificate of mailing? No. Okay. (laughs) What is this? Just learned this the other day. It's certified mail, which is the green card, and you get return receipt and the whole bit, and it comes back to you. And then there's something called a certificate of mailing, where the postal office has a little card that you have to fill out, and they stamp it, and it basically tells people that you mailed the stuff out, okay? So, in this zoning board application that I'm doing, it's 30 it's mailing to, you have to mail mail to the homeowner, regular mail. You then have to mail to the resident at the same address, regular mail, and then provide a certificate of mailing for both saying that you did this. That's hours. Wow. Hours. And I fortunately had somebody come in and help me out with that, but it's hours, this
0: stuff. What's it It, like when you finally get, what's it like when you finally get to the building process? Finally, when a permit is issued over there, is it like a is it breezy? I mean, is it very easy? Um,
1: depends on the town. It okay. really does. There, there's a town on Long Island called Islip, and it's it's pronounced Islip, but it's spelled I S L I P. It's they're so crazy about building code, and it's so crazy about detail, the level of detail you have to put in the drawings, houses, whatever. That when it goes out in the field, you just kind of yeah, you, know, you go. And it's smooth because everything's on the drawings. Hmm. And the building inspectors there say, it's on the drawings, you better follow the drawings. And it goes real smooth, okay? But there's a cultural difference. When I talk about cultural, how much construction administration on average do you do on your projects?
0: Very little. On Colorado, it's more Wild West,
1: yeah. Okay, same. But same here to a point. In New York City, you have to do a degree in construction administration because of their permit process, Mm -hmm. okay? western nassau gold coast up and up in the north shore of long island it's expected more to do construction administration because the scale of the homes being constructed that also that local municipality is crazy so you have to go out and do some construction administration just to fit their inspection requirements as you go further east than long island it becomes less it becomes more and more the wild west okay and then you get out to the hamptons and It goes out the other way and you go back to more construction administration because there's millionaires in the city who are building houses in the Hamptons and they need somebody to keep an eye on. So it's such a cultural difference. Even when you talk to architects from, I'm the center of Wyoming, You talk to architects who do work and they're exclusively in the Hamptons. They do five jobs a year and it's all construction administration and interiors and everything else. And they'll make more money than I ever will think of. And they'll make, but where I look at construction numbers, they may do a five million dollars construction year. I might be doing five million dollars construction a year, but it's it's a whole different cultural thing of of services by the architect at that point. So that's the difference as far as jobs do go smoothly because of the level of drug detail that they make you put on a lot of drawing. But there's always there's always quirk. You know, there's always things that don't go so so smoothly. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was, some, that was some. Thank you for sharing all that that insight. Just kind of your experience there. That, that's one of the primary reasons why I wanted to have you on. The other one was um, for everybody listening. Uh, Jack and I met. We did. We basically sat in on a, a lecture for the Boston Architectural College last week, um, and there was. He he brought up the fact that um, I, I don't know if it was your firm or a firm you were working with before that you you've actually engaged with the Trump organization before. Um, and everybody has all kinds of. Uh, Ideas about what it's like to work for Donald Trump, or what it was, and I would just like to hear firsthand from somebody. Um, I'm not guessing that you met the man, but still working with the organization. How do they treat their architects? And are the rumors true about delinquent payments, or were they good to go? Okay. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, I I'm going to say I do have a memento of that occasion. Of I actually have a contract, the copy of the AIA contract signed between Donald Trump and, and. at our firm where I signed the contract on our end. Wow! So I have that as a memento. Never met the man, I met, it. Trump was, Trump? you have to understand something about Trump. Trump is a brand also. So they thought it was a good idea to stick Trump on the door and the brand of Trump and he's a management organization, okay? His actual ownership of things isn't necessarily 100%, okay? All right, so, what had happened was, and I'll tell this story. It's an interesting story. It's kind of sad in its own way. We were moving along. What happened was, he's building a building a project. He was building a catering hall down in Jones Beach. The people who were were actually building it were experienced catering hall operatives. They they did really good work in the area. They knew what they were doing. They brought Trump in for branding. Okay, they responded. They wanted a request for a proposal years before I got involved in it for a, for a, um, the catering hall, but the the catch was, in the RFP, they said, you must use the, you can use the basement for storage and service, okay, fast forward to 2007-8, okay, Um, we were starting to move along the project, my father passed away, about October 2007, we had his wake. And dad was thrilled that I was working for Trump. And we got everybody together and the project manager was working on the project was at the wake. And we were going for a state variance with the regional codes examiner through the state. We had to get a state variance because the state had determined that even though our occupants Occupants' uh, numbers said we only had thirty people in the basement. The state said, for whatever reason, you no, 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 you have eighty-five people in that basement. Can't do that. That's that's the flood. The flood ordinances, and they would refuse to. So we had to go for the state variance. Uh, the project manager who brought the project in, I know he dealt with Trump. He dealt with all the particulars. I was the code guru and and, and all that. He brings Trump in. He, brings, he, bring, he, he goes up to the regional codes examiner. i perhaps uh, at my dad's wake. <laughs> probably the codes examiner has his own personal issues. He was worked for Hawkins Web Jager, didn't like the idea, and was throw, was let go in a very in acrimonious way. Didn't like Hawkins Webb Jagger. Didn't like him. Fortunately like me a little bit. And the guy makes the mistake of going up to him and says, Oh, don't worry, we're going to get this variance as a done deal. And the regional codes examiner freaked out Ooh. at that moment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was he was having a big time personal issue at that day, wrong day to talk to him, and he decided he was going to make sure that this was done right. So the politics interview now also in the shift of politics is, and we went from a Republican state to a Democratic state, and this this whole thing was blowing up anyway. So we went off to they they had the hearing up at a. Um, some obscure little New York state town, I think it's called Hastings on the Lake. We had to drive four hours to get there. We wanted it off Long Island for some reason and just to get away from the Long Island politics. And the, the presentation didn't, we just, it. let's put it this way, it was, it was in a bag, it really wasn't in a bag. And I came mm-hmm. and I would go through a presentation, structural engineer wasn't prepared. This was person, people weren't prepared. And I said, wait, guys, I'm never going to get involved in this ever again unless you guys come back locked and loaded. So we they decided the next hearing had to be in the. They actually packed out the cradle of aviation in a 250 seat facility. And they let the opposition, it was four people came all, drove all the way upstate and opposed the project. They had the opposition set up their own table. And this is 2000. Seven, eight, long before Trump was a politician, I never. I'm. I I don't get involved. I don't want to even get involved in politics here. I did not understand the derangement syndrome, Mm. but I saw it firsthand. This early, nine years before he ran for office, it was Trump. It had to do with Trump, Mm -hmm. and it was so crazy at that hearing. I mean, I. Was walking around with it. I actually at one point walked around with a board showing a drawing, and somebody grabbed me by my collar, yanked me around, almost got violent with me until the attorneys came and grabbed me back, pulled me back to the front of the room. I'm like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" I pulled my hands up. I'm like, "What happened here?" (laughs) I found out there there are things I don't want to disclose publicly. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, uh, but. About the, about what because there was friends involved. I there was friends involved. I, I'm friends with the regional code examiner I've known for 30 years. Um, the 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 side story was my wife had I had a cat that was we were trying to teach it, it was feral and I had all kinds of issues. So I got a phone call from my wife. This was televised, locally televised, oh whole night. And my wife calls me up and says, "You know, you look terrible on TV." <laughs> 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 you look terrible i was like chief thanks honey you know and you know a couple of a few hours later i call it back we had this cat and it was really having issues and we were trying to figure out what to do with it and we were ready at the point to just put it outside because it was such a nightmare mm-hmm. and i can't follow, the next phone call the cat just pooped on the bed. I'm in the middle of this hearing. The cat just, what do you want me to do about it? Yeah. I just threw him outside. It's like, fine, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> <You know>? So <laughs> it was so many, I I, teach, I talk this. tell this story with the, so many sidebars of dad's funeral. We're at dad's wake, and all this stuff is going on. And wake was a celebration of life, it wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't at a funeral home. We were at a VFW hall. It was a celebration of life. But it was so bizarre, all the things that went on. Anyway, going back to the hearing, I had beaten the hell out of everybody, getting ready. I didn't say much in the hearing. I beat the daylights out of everybody. And I said, You better be ready. You better be ready. You better be prepared. Here's the presentation I want. This is what I want to do. This is how we're going to present it. And we kept hammering it home. We get to we were up for eight hours. Wow. Eight hours the hearing was. Guy, the, the chief, the, the chairman of the board, who they they the um, had to bring him down from upstate because the chairman of the board here recluses himself. Comes down from upstate. He goes, listen, guys, I gotta say this. At the end of the hearing. He goes, this was the best presentation I ever saw. He goes, you were thorough, you were prepared, you had everything, you answered all the questions. This was the best presentation I ever saw. They wander off. Hour and a half. We're in. Seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock at night. I'm talking to uh, a pretty um, news, a news reporter. I'm just talking to her. Just back, I was actually, they were, they were beaming lights out. You know, they, you know how television, they show up on yep. TV and they do all the beam. and I'm asking questions about what is this? You know, we're just completely off the subject. Lawyers just grab me. Oh, no. The lawyers, what the heck were you talking to her? <laughs> Wait a minute. You, were, you can't say it. I'm like, well, he said, listen, guys. That's a very pretty girl over there, okay? I'm middle-aged, married, and if I have an opportunity to talk to a pretty girl for 20 minutes, I'm going to take it because there's nothing <laughs> better to do it here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, that, so they came back. Everybody packs in the room again. They came back, and they said, "Let denied. That would oh. be denied the application. Trump beat the daylights out of courts, just killed them five times, beat them up. And he um, he won and they started construction again and it tropical storm Sandy yet, And that was the end of that. They buried it and they, mm. they realized it was too much money after that. And that was the end of that. But he didn't pay us. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, a death knell of that firm at the end of the day. That was probably what that firm was. That firm had been bought out by a larger engineering firm, an architecture firm. They were using us as the architecture firm and right after that uh, they basically said that we don't want you a separate entity we want you in the main office so and we moved from medford to Belleville, and the commute and the commute got longer and i after a couple of years of and i said i can't do this anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah where I, too, as I said full-time responsibilities on both the practice them hours it was too much for me at that point so there was now i had to figure it out on my own so that's that's you know that was what i did and that's where i so i'm you talked about seven years. I'm seven years after that reinvention. So,
0: you know, here sure I am. Yeah. Thank you for telling that story. That was wonderful. Um, let's let's move into kind of some some other topics here because uh, one of the things you and I also talked about at that at that lecture was we both kind of agreed on was fees, how it all works, right? And I think that's one of the downfalls of architecture school is that uh, that doesn't get brought up a lot. And if people, you know, half of architects are sole proprietors, so they're going to be business owners, you know. Um, right. How, what advice would you give to those who are considering starting their own service-based business about
1: fees? Like, how much to charge? What to look for? Where do you even start? I think you have to understand how long how, you have to. You have to start off by understanding how long things take. Okay, you're going to do something that's going to take 20 hours. You have to. You have to be realistic enough enough to know it's going to take 20 hours. It might take you transfer 30 hours. That's the first realization. The second thing, and this is from talking to you and other people through the Facebook community and everything else, it changes over time. If you think about it, your needs are different at 30 as they are at 50 and 70, okay? When I was 30, I had certain needs because I had a growing family. When I was 50, kids were in college. I, that was where I had to make maximum money. Kids are in college here. And then as I've gone through my 50s, the mortgage is paid off, the kids are, college is done, and your needs aren't as great. Okay, so all of a sudden your your, your fee structure and, and I, I realized that my fee structure changed a little bit because mm-hmm. where I was here, say two thousand three, I was forty where I started. I was I needed to have a lot of money, I needed to start up money. And then when I got to here when I was in early fifties when the kids were in college and everything, I had to be here, I had to make a lot of money. Now I'm in my late fifties approaching sixty and I don't have any real bills anymore. Everything's paid for. So I know that I don't take home as much as I once did, but because I, I don't have any bills anymore, actually at the end of the day I net more. You, you understand what I'm saying? It changes as you go later, it evolves as you go along to what your needs are. Um, would I've liked to be more consistent? Yes. Okay. Do I have do you have to adapt to the times? Yes. Are there way too many architects on log out? Yes. That's a biggie. Okay. I don't know what they are in Colorado. I know there's 750 licensed architects and stuff in County alone. Okay. Alone. So it's, and you're competing with, especially on the residential side. Mm-hmm. Residential, I, I hear these people, oh, right, you know, well, we should charge this and charge that. And I go, yeah, because the next guy down the street who does residential might do it for half of what you're doing. You have to win that client. Okay. You have to win that person in front of you. And I tell people all the time, I'm not the cheapest. I don't deserve to be but I want to win you over, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you accept the fact that you're going to pay me a certain amount of money, that's fine, okay? If you're going to expect, expect the fact that you you want to pay the lowest common denominator, go find somebody else, okay? Or if I can do it for that number, I'll try to work you in. That's all. You know, it's a it's, it's very simple type of work. It's, you know, my what I charge Habitat for Humanity, for example, is way less than I charge a custom home build or a, or, or another type of building type. I get more satisfaction out of working for Habitat, way, way more, but you have to balance that work out with the higher end work at that point, you know. So that's, that's fees are relevant, you know, we talk about, it's funny, in the last six months I have more conversations with more architects about fees and whether or not we're making enough money. It really is up to the individual business owner or individual person exactly what their needs are, you know.
0: Yeah. I think, you, I think you're spot on with that. Boil it down to your needs based on where you're at in time. And it's a snapshot and then you need to reevaluate and then adapt, you know, like you've been bringing up over and over again. Um, what, what is one thing you would tell every small business owner? Um, what, what do you think they should know if there's just one thing you could tell them um, when they start their practice in any
1: kind? Think long term. Think, think about the extended term of where you're going. Okay. The one thing I, I, I always, I have to keep coming back to, you're going to have a bad month. You're going to have a month where nobody pays the bills. You're not getting a retainer, and you're going, to get, you're going to get those bad months, bad weeks, okay? You can't panic in those times. Panic, this is how you panic. Somebody comes through the door with a job, and you undercut yourself by 40% because you, need, you I need to work. I need the, not until you need the work, you need the money. You get, is the work there or not? You probably have work. You've got to finish up the work you have in front of you so you can bill it. You always have to fight the the short term daily the short term impact of, hey, I ain't get a check a uh, a check to come in this week. I didn't get a check to come in for two weeks, three weeks. Sometimes that happens. And then you get a whole surge of money come in and it all balances out. So you have to think long you have to think longer term than a week, a month, three months. I think three months even. You know, I try to look at things at a three month a quarterly basis now over a monthly basis because I think that's where you have to you have to have faith in yourself enough to, to do that. Okay. This year's been tough. This year's been really tough between you know with the pandemic and, and the recession that followed and everything else. So it's really, and the payment protection loan I think skewed a lot of things too, where people got the payment protection loans. Whether they pay them back or have to pay them back or not, they have, they they have this available capital, but did they spend it or not is a big question. The fall of Hawkins Webb Jager was cash related because when they finally had to be taken back, and I asked why, it was not not the fact that Trump didn't pay him was there was a point where they pulled the partners at the bigger company pulled out all the cash out of the company. Mm -hmm. And we never can't replenish it. You can't deplete your cash reserves beyond any reasonable you know, hey, I got $50,000 in the bank at the end of the year. End of December, i going to take it all out. I'll pay the taxes. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll buy the boat or the car or whatever. You can't do that. You have to think long term because, yeah, it's easy for me to pull. It's easy for any business owner to say at the end of the year, hey, pull $50,000. I'll buy this. I'll buy this. I'll buy this. You can't. You have to think longer term. So you have to leave money in for the following. So. You, that's the biggest thing I, I think that's the biggest thing in any business it's not, it's people, some people don't have the long-term thinking ability you know what's three months out what's six months out what's nine months out? How do I do it from you know I, I look at you know my work and I say I got enough work to last me six months mm-hmm. maybe nine I got a couple of long-term projects that I know'll be they'll be here a year and a half from now It's you know it's thinking that long term. Is, you know, you're going to, you know, will zero work come into me next month? I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. But you have to think longer term than a week a month. That's, that's really the biggest thing as far as to answer your question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one question is kind of a sort of a last one that I, I ask every guest. And that is, it's a question for you, uh, for yourself, actually. Uh, knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time, when you first started your business, what piece of advice would you give yourself?
1: I think I just did it. it I think you did too. Time. I think you did too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, think yeah. was, I think that was the <laughs> the advice that I that I get would have given myself fifteen years ago was think long term, trust your systems. That's the other thing. You if you set up a system, I I, I set up a system. It's all it's terrible to the outside observer of accounting through Excel spreadsheets. Okay, it's not. I try to learn QuickBooks. I try to learn Peachtree. The, the time consumed to learn those programs and do all the database work and then try to pull in the older clients into the newer system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you're a sole practitioner, it's impossible. Almost. Yeah. So you have to trust your systems. That's also true with drugs. I set up a system very early on to this is how I do it. This is how I deliver Okay. The sheets are set up a certain way. The drawings are set up a certain way. The, you know, we have templates so you pull in, you, you pull in a common template on everything, and this is how you move forward. And the cool thing about that was when I got to New York City and worked in New York City for the first time, I was able to pull the stuff that I worked on out here from a code and, and study and, and, and logic standpoint to help quite a bit on the city work. So, the system works, okay? And that system is, you know, that system works, doesn't necessarily work for SLM. It's not gonna necessarily work for you or somebody else. It works for me. So, you have to trust yourself and your systems. That's the biggest advice that I could give myself early on. But I set those systems up early on. They proved the work and I stayed with it.
0: Absolutely, I I can't stress, uh, I would just echo what Jack said. Those systems, those fundamentals—if you get them right from the beginning—you'll be, and then you have the long-term vision. You, you, you almost can't go wrong. You almost can't go right. wrong. Um, Jack, this has been wonderful. Uh, thank you for being on today. If people, if somebody's listening on the East Coast and they want to get in touch with you and learn about your business, or you know, maybe, maybe possible, possibly engage you, um, where and how can they do that?
1: I have a website that's Roseberry www. It's Com. desperate need of upgrading. <laughs> So, but if there is a um, a uh, place where you can leave a notification there. Um, I have a Facebook page, Roseberry Architectural Studio. And then uh, you contact, you know, from there you can contact, you can Google me, you can contact me over the phone. I've had recent, uh, I did a uh, little thing for Newsday at the local newspaper about surviving storms where I stood in front of my dilapidated, my shed got torn apart in a storm and I stood in front of the shed and then did a whole bit on, you know, to your house prior to the storm. But that's, you know, little things like that, you'll find me. You know, that's, that's, that'll be, you know, so, but that, the way the website and the Facebook page is the best way.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for being on, Jack.
1: Thank you. It.